anybody who doesn't know, as Nikki said this morning, um, I do have a Master of Arts in Clinical Community Psychology from Pepperdine University from a million years ago. Uh, and I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, somebody, somebody was just asking me, oh, I didn't know you were an MFT, and where do you practice? And it's like, I don't. So um, uh, I've worked for a number of years with nonprofits uh, that do provide mental health services. For a number of years, I did direct service with children at an elementary school setting. Um, and then I've done clinical supervision and program management more than that. So currently I am behavioral health program director at Family Service Agency. So, um, so that makes me supposedly an expert, but I, I, the disclaimer is that all of us have been touched in some way or another ourselves um, and or uh, those we love with the challenges, mental health challenges, and, um, and that makes you probably, in your experiences, um, more expertise. You have more expertise than I do. Um, but, you know, we can come together and uh, acknowledge the pain that we have from those experiences together and, and share that. And, um, yeah, and I thank you for, for doing that and being part of that today. Um, I feel reluctant to do this kind of thing, and um, in getting ready for this, I really realized that that's really due in large part from my, from my desire to have answers for you, that you know you would walk away with something all tied up in a nice package, and that's not going to happen. So if that's what you wanted, <laughs> you might as well go now. So um, how we experience God's care for us in our own in our loved one's mental illness um, it leaves me with more questions than answers, to be honest with you. Um, and um, there's a phrase that I'll repeat <laughs> as I share with you, and yet, and yet, um, uh, those moments in our time together. Um, but it did hit me, too, that for me, that, that's really where the mess is, uh, that Nikki keeps this God with us in the mess. The mess is, in those questions that that don't have answers necessarily, um, but I continue to believe that uh, God hears and cares about our questions. So I hang on to that. So what I want to talk about today, you know, is kind of you know this was a, a my opportunity to decide what what did I want to share about all these things, and so so yeah, you're stuck with what what I decided I wanted to talk about, and and really there's a of overlap with what we've done uh, and things that we've talked about in previous encounter sessions. For those of you who've been here, um, you know that Samir started us off talking in kind of in general terms about trauma uh, and, uh, and looking at Job from that perspective. And certainly then Sandy talking about trauma as a result of church abuse, Russell talking about trauma as a result of grief and loss. So that's, there's a lot of... Uh, interplay between our mental health challenges and, and traumas that we experience. And then Rolf's uh, discussion, of course, about substance use disorders. And there's the term of co-occurring disorders, very common um, that substance abuse and uh, mental health challenges are found together. So um, I want to talk about a little bit, some conversation about the prevalence of mental illness 
um, kind of a little bit about the range of mental illness disorders there are and, and some a little bit on treatments. Um, then I want to talk about stigma, some thoughts about stigma and a few thoughts on suicide um, and then a little bit about God with us in this uh, situation and I think so appropriate that this is Advent and, and thinking of Emmanuel, God with us. Um, and then how can we respond as imitators of Jesus and as a church? And that's for ourselves again as well as for those we love. So when we talk about mental health challenges, we're not talking about somebody else out there somewhere. It's, it's us. It's us, uh, and it's the people we love. Um, it's not some faceless group of people. Um, and it does seem like we hear more these days, I think, about how common mental illness is, um, and especially in response to the pandemic, of course, which uh, I was reading, you know, that in a lot of ways the stress that, that that's been experienced in these past few years is that a normal response to an abnormal situation. The stress is not abnormal, actually. So I have some statistics for you. Uh, the National Institute of Mental Health in 2020 said, said that one in five U.S. adults live with a mental illness, with an estimated 21 million adults in the United States having experienced at least one major depressive episode. According to the CDC, a 2021 survey found that nearly one in four adults ages 18 to 44 had sought mental health treatment in the last 12 months. A study published in 2021 in The Lancet estimated that the pandemic had caused an additional 53.2 million cases of major dis depressive disorder and 76.2 million cases of anxiety disorder globally. Uh, and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services says that about half of all people in the United States will be diagnosed with a mental disorder at some point in their lifetime. And I would kind of add to that that um, there are probably a fair number of mental health disorders that go undiagnosed as well. Um, so mental illness is no respecter of persons. Um, I read a, a newsletter article recently and I thought they did a great job of highlighting the impact that mental illness has across the population and that goes undetected by most of us. We don't see it on the surface anywhere. Um, so they, they uh, noted the, the mental disorders experienced by a registered nurse, a former pro wrestler, an animal rescue sanctuary director, people in love, medical students, spouses, parents, students, college graduates, friends, PhDs, volunteers, siblings, daughters, sons, people who look normal and put together, people who bake, people who do crafts, beauty pageant winners, teachers, the list goes on. It, it's all of us. Um, and there are such a wide range of disorders and symptoms. Probably when we say mental illness, there is a picture that comes to your mind and something that you, because of your own experience or those you love that you hone in on. But it's, we're talking about a huge variety of things. Um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders is the, the big book for mental health providers um, now in its fifth plus um, revision. But I, I want to give you just a sense of just from the categories in that big book. 
neurodevelopmental disorders, schizophrenia spectrum and other psychotic disorders, bipolar and related disorders, depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive and related disorders, trauma and stressor related disorders, dissociative disorders, there's really nothing funny about any of this, um, somatic symptom and related disorders, feeding and eating disorders, elimination disorders, sleep-wake disorders, sexual dysfunctions, gender dysphoria, disruptive impulse control and conduct disorders, substance-related and addictive disorders, uh, neurocognitive disorders, personality disorders, paraphilic disorders, medication-induced disorders. So, you know, and then within each of all those categories, there's subcategories. So, you can, it's just, a, it's a huge, huge, huge field, a huge area. So many things that can go wrong. Um, and, and diagnosis is challenging at best. You know, many people will give stories of, of misdiagnosis for years and years. Um, and, and within all these disorders, too, there's such a wide range of functioning. Um, and severe, severity is determined largely by what we call functional impairments. You know, how well is, are people to live their daily lives with whatever it is that they're living with? Um, so there's like even a term like high-functioning depression. And again, these are the, the invisible things that are around us. Uh, this is a, a, little, a little bit of a pet peeve uh, on my on my part. Uh, we can casually toss around mental health and diagnostic terminology. I'll give you an example. My own family, my mother, I'll call her some days and she'll tell me she's so depressed. And, you know, there have been things that went wrong that day. And, and not to say that she maybe doesn't deal with some depression, but she's using that term to describe I'm having a really hard day. And yet, you know, it's a, it's a medical diagnosis as well. Um, but, you know, you know, you've heard people say, oh, that's so OCD, or I have PTSD from that traffic or that exam or something, and it's like, okay, I mean, yeah, we just might want to think just a bit more about, about the terms we're using when we, when we describe kind of day-to-day things um, and honor the people who are dealing with some of those things in reality. Of course, treatments vary widely. Um, medications and now a lot of other kinds of drugs that are being used. There's a range of talk therapies, electroconvulsive therapy. There's a, there's a lot of different therapies. And um, of course, what's that? Which are the ones that they've got rid of? Oh yeah, well, that, like the electroconvulsive, they've come back around to that. I mean, yeah. now in a new and improved way and it's very effective for Not some people. Yet, right? right, right, that, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, providers vary from psychiatrists, psychologists, marriage and family therapists, professional, Anna and I have had this conversation, professional clinical counselors, clinical social workers, all with their different specialties and areas, but so confusing, really, in some ways, and especially for somebody who's in the throes of trying to deal with this and try to figure out who's the best person um, to help them, and maybe they need multiple people, they need a team. So some, some thoughts on stigma. I, I want to read, this is a little bit long, but I, I just felt like it was really um, well, well stated. I'm going to mispronounce her name, no doubt. Devika Bushan is a pediatrician, public health practitioner, parent, and Indian American immigrant. She served as California's acting Surgeon General in this past year, so 
our Surgeon General stepped down. She stepped in for, for a little while. So she wrote this. In 2011, I was a third-year medical student at Harvard Medical School. I was on my psychiatry rotation, and I had a secret. My attending doctors remarked on how well I supported our patients. I was grateful, but felt as though my familiarity with and deep empathy for their symptoms and medication side effects were like a neon sign that at any moment could out me. Using the words bipolar disorder in reference to myself was brand new to me then. The images I had of people with bipolar disorder just didn't fit with my sense of who I was. And I felt strong, internalized shame around my diagnosis and the mood-stabilizing medications I had started taking. That stigma was ever-present around me, too. On other rotations, I'd heard colleagues refer with unfounded prejudice to patients with bipolar disorder. You can't trust anything she says. She's probably lying. She's bipolar. I never wanted anyone to diminish the doctor and colleague I could be with stereotypes like these. So I went to some lengths to keep my diagnosis to myself. I first noticed mood symptoms in 2009 before starting my second year of medical school. That summer I had worked at a health center in a Nicaraguan village far away from those closest to me. When I returned to Boston, I remember standing frozen in the grocery store, completely overwhelmed by the vegetable choices in front of me. My mind kept going over and over the options without knowing what to put in my cart. My thoughts were sluggish. I was absent in conversations. It felt as if I was experiencing my life from a faraway place, muted and without color. It took all my effort to come up with the right thing to say to seem normal. I would read the same passage over and over and not recognize any of it. For the first time, I felt out of my depth in academics and thought maybe I didn't have it in me to continue with medical school. The hardest moments were the sleepless nights. I would toss and turn, feeling alone and agonized. Nothing relieved my exhaustion. I dreaded the sunrise because it meant having to get through another day. I alternated between feeling numb and having jagged spurts of panic. What's wrong with me? Could this actually be the new me? It was terrifying to lose such fundamental parts of myself, the way I thought, how I related to others, even my baseline disposition. I knew something was really wrong, but despite having studied depression, I didn't recognize it in myself. After two weeks of feeling this way, at the urging of my partner and parents, I saw a psychiatrist. Since I didn't have a family history of bipolar disorder, she didn't suspect it. I was started on routine antidepressants, antidepressants and therapy. For more than two years, I tried medication after medication, again, that misdiagnosis, with no significant relief. The medications also layered what felt like a miserable, activated energy on top of my depression. Eventually, they trapped me into mania. But that first, and so far only, manic episode saved me. It led to my receiving the right diagnosis of bipolar disorder two and a half years after my symptoms began. I was losing hope that I would ever feel like myself again, but that diagnosis led me to treatments that finally worked. It took a few months of medication adjustments and writing out my lowest depression yet, when I struggled with suicidality, but I finally got my full self back. With experience, therapy, and support from loved ones, I became an expert in the variances of my moods, those that were normal and those that were part of my bi bipolar disorder. I learned to ask for and receive help when I needed it. I learned that circadian rhythm disruptions and sleep deprivation wreaked havoc on my brain. The rapid day-to-night schedule switches and 30-hour shifts of medical residency, not healthy for anyone, could specifically trigger major mood episodes for me. 
I learned to minimize triggers, to recognize my red flag symptoms, and double down on behavioral and medication management when I needed to. In 2021, I'd had six years of wellness. I was working at a public health job I loved and was pregnant with my first child. The hormonal, hormonal shifts, sleep deprivation, and new roles at work and at home meant I was entering an especially high-risk period for a mood episode. I was terrified that I would lose myself again. But with help from my partner and my family and concerted strategies to protect sleep after my son was born, amazingly, I was able to stay well. There were certain ups, certainly ups and downs that first year, but I was grateful to start parenthood as myself. Today, I live with bipolar disorder as a chronic and manageable health condition. Having touched rock bottom and survived, I'm motivated to protect myself at all costs, to fiercely guard the boundaries and care strategies I need to stay healthy. With the right treatments and therapy in place, I hope to be well for the majority of my life. I'm now increasingly open about my diagnosis with colleagues and friends. I'm more authentic, authentically myself than ever before, having worked toward accepting all parts of me, flaws included. I would never have predicted this in the lowest points of my illness. I believe that our struggles can be the source of our superpowers. They show us our capacity for vulnerability and strength that we can endure and overcome hard things. They also give us sympathy, empathy for the full spectrum of human experience, allowing us to better support others at their most vulnerable moments. I am not who I am today despite having bipolar disorder, but because of it. Experiencing bipolar disorder has made me a better doctor, colleague, parent, family member, and friend. I wish during my darkest moments I had known someone who had survived the worst of bipolar disorder, someone who could tell me that I'd not only reclaim who I really was, but go on to thrive. I wish I'd known that bipolar disorder wouldn't get in the way of becoming who I wanted to be. In many ways, it would enable it. By sharing my story, I hope to dispel stigma and internalize shame and to help anyone struggling know they are not alone. If you feel comfortable, consider shining a light on your story. Stigma festers in the dark and scatters in the light. Most of all, I want people to know that with effective treatment, a full life and our dreams are all within reach. So I just, again, yeah, just the, you know, and of course not every story uh, is as happy as that one is. And although she's recognizing this is the rest of her life too and that that won't always be at these, at her wellest place. Um, But I, yeah. And and I, I was just thinking this morning too that course I can't know I can't know this but but I really think that God stands against stigma and so uh, you know we can look back in history I mean as you mentioned the lobotomies David um, you know there are periods in our history where we locked up people with mental illness permanently um, so certainly we've made some improvements and yet and yet Um, You know, we look at examples of mental illness and see it as outside of normal functioning. And I wonder sometimes if we can maybe shift our perspective a bit to think that uh, it's a manifestation of another variety of normal. Um, And in that in no way do I want to diminish the real struggle that it is to live with mental illness uh, and the pain that impacts those around us. Um, but at minimum, you know, recognizing that our culture impacts how we view mental illness. Maybe if we think about where stigma comes from, it might help us as we try to address it. Um, I believe 
a fair amount of it comes from what we just don't know. My own fears of what I don't know, what doesn't seem normal to me, can interfere with my genuine care for others. And it, you know, it can be hard for us to understand mental health challenges because they can be really difficult to describe. I think about, um, and that, you know, this comes up multiple times though as I think about this, but that with various physical ailments, you know, we get a blood test or there's a scan. Um, of course, you know, we have to be able to describe symptoms in order to be able to get some of those tests. But, but with mental health challenges, it's all based on, except for what's observable behavior, it's all based on my own description of my own experience, um, uh, even as I work with a provider. So um, this one writer, Rachel Aviv, interviewed patients in their earliest stages of psychosis and asked them to describe their symptoms and, and Patients told her there was no language. It wasn't until like after they were diagnosed and met other people or did reading and, and somebody else put a label on their symptoms that they described them as such. For example, it's like trying to explain what a bark sounds like to someone who's never heard of a dog. They resorted to making up phrases to describe their experiences, like things like migrating electrical sensations and words were alive and a sense of overwhelming strangeness of the world. Um, patients who've entered treatment may experience comfort from having a diagnosis shared by others and having that shared language, but no one can truly understand the experience of another mentally. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, like yeah. Sometimes people thrive in it. I've heard a guy with Tourette's and he can yep. thrive. Yeah. We're going to get to that, dude. <laughs> so, um, according to a report from the Sur Surgeon General, culture can really affect the way in which people do describe their symptoms and, and how they're viewed, um, such as whether they describe them as emotional or physical. And every culture has its own way of trying to make sense of the highly subjective experience that's an understanding of one's mental health. Each has its opinion on whether mental illness is real or imagined. So by culture, we, you know, we look at these things differently. We're trained in some way to, to view mental health challenges based on our culture. Um, is it an illness of the mind or the body or both? Who is at risk for it? What might cause it? And perhaps most importantly, the level of stigma surrounding it varies culture by culture. Um, for example, then the prevalence of schizophrenia is pretty consistent throughout the world, but depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and suicide rates have been shown to be more attributed to cultural and social factors. Mm -hmm that, yeah, just things to think about in how we view all these things. I think in addition to the difficulties around describing mental illness and its symptoms, we have such really a lack, and this is hard as a provider, I have to say, as a lack, a lack of knowledge about the cause of mental illness. Um, you know, we've, we've talked for years about uh, chemical imbalances in the brain causing depression. You know, there's recent research that says, no, that's not at all the case. You know, there's medications that are used, and we don't know why they work, so many of them. You know, I'm thankful they do, but we, yeah, there's just, and that means there's a lack of agreement on treatment approaches. Um, yeah, you know, we've made some efforts to equate mental disorders with physical disorders. So like now there, there's been huge fights um, in the government to, 
in, to cause insurance companies to cover mm -hmm. mental illnesses in parity with how they cover uh, physical physical illnesses. And so even in that way, just trying to um, to look at things is you know is it equated with a with a physical illness? As David was saying, you know another another way that we can maybe address uh, stigma is by look at looking at various person persons who've been affected by mental illness either self-proclaimed or somebody historically looking at their lives and who achieved great things. So, for example, artists such as Van Gogh, Michelangelo, Picasso, people that, that believe that they were all affected by mental illness, musicians from Beethoven to Ozzy Osbourne, Kurt Cobain, Mariah Carey, Lady Gaga, um, actors, entertainers, Glenn Close, Leonardo DiCaprio, Robin Williams, Writers and poets, Leo Tolstoy, Ernest Hemingway, Tennessee Williams, John Keats, politicians, Abraham Lincoln, scientists, Isaac Newton, athletes like Serena Williams. And, and um, you know, we tend to think that these persons achieved great things despite their mental health challenges, but even as, you know, Dr. Bouchon said, maybe they achieved them because of their mental health challenges. Um, Certainly, you know, we would never wish for anybody to, to deal with mental health issues um, in order to achieve greatness. Um, and yet, it can help us, I think, to, to think differently about it when we realize, um, again, that it's the prevalence and, and that it doesn't have to be, doesn't have to define people's lives so much. Um, but at the same time, many experts not just many experts in general, know little about why some people with mental health issues can lead really fulfilling and functional lives, and others with the very same diagnoses feel as if they are defined and disabled by their illness. Um, you may have heard this term being trauma-informed. There's it's certainly a lot of buzz in my field these days. Um, and so I think having a trauma-informed lens can uh, help us with the idea of reducing stigma. Um, and, and I would say a trauma-informed and resilience-oriented approach. Um, and one way to think of being trauma-informed is to imagine observing the behavior of someone that might otherwise bring judgment. For example, that we might wanna say, what is wrong with you? Uh, and consider the potential pain or trauma or backstory behind that behavior. Russell, I think about the story you told about the, the weight person um, and that you commented that, that the person was having a bad day. So the, recognizing that there, it was coming out in her behavior, um, but recognizing there, there was something behind that. It wasn't, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of that trauma-informed lens is realizing that that comes from somewhere. And that's not to blame people, um, but just, an acknowledgement. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of those videos that are out that there's one, what was Doug, it was called God's Glasses or something. It's kind of hokey. I thought about showing it, but it was kind of hokey. So I decided not to show it. But, but I like the idea that this guy puts on these glasses and then there's little bubbles that appear over people's heads mm -hmm. that tell like this person's, you know, going through a divorce and this person um, just lost their job and, and this person experienced childhood abuse. And so it's like, we don't see that stuff, it's invisible. 
Um, and and people, people are walking around with that pain, and it affects their behavior. Um, and, you know, long acknowledgement that stress is casually implicated in, a in an enormous range of mental disorders. And chronic stressors like poverty, political violence, discrimination, intensify the chance that an individual de will develop disorders from depression to schizophrenia. And yet, I, I really prefer that we, when we think about a trauma-informed approach that we do add on that piece of the resilience orientation um, and that that perspective, because that allows us to hold out hope um, and, and to recognize, to have that kind of recovery model. The recovery model has long been recognized in substance abuse treatment, um, but it's also applied to mental health treatment as well. And, and that recovery perspective, um, one of the things that it, it offers is that a person is not their diagnosis or their symptoms. Um, there's this, um, I know it could be politically charged, the idea of person-first language. Um, to be able to say, you know, a person with schizophrenia, a person with depression, not a schizophrenic or a depressive, that so that people are not just defined by their, their mental health challenges. Um, and then the, the idea, too, that recovery is an ongoing journey, not a destination. And so it'll involve relapses. Um, again, as the Dr. Bouchon kind of talked about, that that's, that's likely to happen in her life. And, and the hope is that, that there's learning that can occur from those, those things. Um, and for some people, that's true. OK, so thoughts on suicide. Um, Initially, I, I had, you know, wrote up what I wanted to talk about, and I had just omitted suicide. Um, and I know that was due to my own discomfort, because, uh, again, I don't have answers. But I don't want to just avoid the difficult conversations. So I know that there are a number of us in this room that have been directly affected by the suicide of a loved one. <sighs> There, there's a, a whole body of research and there are tools available about ways in which we can see the signs, we might see the signs of a person contemplating death by suicide, and ways in which we or professionals uh, might intervene for suicide prevention. And yet, having that knowledge of those tools is no guarantee of preventing suicide. Um, I, I had the privilege for a few years to serve as a volunteer co-facilitator with a hospice group for survivors of suicide. And, and I have to tell you, it was, it was such an honor to be among those people who had dealt with the loss of a, of a family member to suicide. Um, they were vulnerable and shared from the depths of their pain. And, and it was so helpful for them to be with each other uh, in that journey. Um, and all of them had some sense of guilt for the death of their loved one and were, were wrestling with the reality that they could not have prevented that death. Um, death by suicide is not strictly a mental health issue. Certainly suicide rates are higher among people diagnosed with mental health disorders. Um, and with some disorders having a higher risk of suicide than, than some. Um, 
often that assessment of someone dealing with a mental disorder occurs after a, a suicide has, has occurred. So it's then looking at signs after the fact um, and, and considering like maybe there was some kind of a masked depression, which is completely possible. Um, yeah. And it's a little bit of the kind of thing of what's causing what. Suicidal thoughts might serve to reinforce um, a depressed mood, and the depressed mood might serve to reinforce suicidal thoughts. So kind of um, difficult to say. I, I, we can be tempted, I think, at times to minimize suicidal thoughts or, or suicide attempts um, as just cries for help. Um, and I think we always want to take any, any suicidal thoughts, any suicide attempts seriously. Um, and, and one thing that struck me in this group um, that I, you know, realized I could, again, it's that casual use of language um, and hurt we can unintentionally cause by actually the casual way that we might talk about suicide, like I was so bored I wanted to shoot myself or something like that that we might say or the gestures that we might use of slitting our throats or something. And so, uh, again, yeah, you know, these are just not huge things, but as we can grow in awareness and uh, see those little bubbles that are, that people, for some people, when, when the casual mention of suicide is, is repulsive um, because of their experience. So, God with us. I, I do believe God is with us in this mess of unanswered questions about mental illness. Um, but I also think that in the midst of mental illness, it can be tremendously hard to sense God's care. And again, not unlike what Russell shared about grief, that in the, in the midst of grief, having some sense of, yes, God is there, but, but not being able to, to feel it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I never want to be flippant about that and assume when we, when those around us are suffering with mental illness that, you know, oh, you know, your relationship with God will, will lift you out of it and, and will help. And um, yes, but, but not to be, uh, not as a pat answer for people. Um, and... Uh, Samir and, and Russell um, particularly pointed out to us that, that God is with us in the mess, uh, in our mental health issues, through each other, in community. And, and I just happened yesterday to read this lovely quote from Henri Nouwen. Nothing is sweet or easy about community. Community is a fellowship of people who do not hide their joys and sorrows, but make them visible to each other as a gesture of hope. In community, we say, life is full of gains and losses, joys and sorrows, ups and downs, but we do not have to live it alone. We want to drink our cup together and thus celebrate the truth that the wounds of our individual lives, which seem intolerable when lived alone, become sources of healing when we live them as part of a fellowship of mutual care. 
Um, so how do we do that? Um, it, again, I, I was struck by Samir's words uh, in speaking about Job and that Job, what he needed from his friends was to be seen, truly seen, and, and needed their compassion and not for them to pretend they knew God's purpose in his suffering. And, and we all need that. We all need to be seen uh, and need compassion, especially in times of struggle, whether that's relationship issues, job issues, financial issues, physical health issues, mental health issues. So to help others be seen, I think one of the things that we can do is to learn about their disorders. Um, mental health disorders from experts and from the lived experience experts themselves from those that we love and care about to really listen to people to ask you know to have a genuine curiosity about their mental health struggles and not to assume that we already know or understand um, I had mentioned this writer earlier Rachel Aviv and she said she interviewed a woman who told her that when she developed psychosis she didn't accept that she had a mental illness because the concept seemed so far removed from the substance of what she was going through. And this woman, tragic story, ended up incarcerated for a crime she committed when she was psychotic. Uh, and she ended up becoming close with a prison librarian with whom she discussed the books she was reading each week. She felt grounded by a deep connection to another person. She was known by her. Um, and when she was struggling more intensely with her mental health challenges, she trusted the librarian's assessment of her state of mind. So she went off her psychiatric drugs and the librarian said to her, I don't fully recognize you. Um, she, the woman wasn't herself. And the woman then decided to start taking her medications again. It wasn't her just sent, hounding her saying, hey, you need to take your meds, you're off your meds. But, but like, no, you're not who I know you to be. Um, and, and she, you know, her comment about this librarian, not a mental health mm -hmm. professional, she knew me intellectually, philosophically, and even on some level spiritually. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's, I believe, what we're called to do is to know people that way. She was a huge barometer to judge my wellness and non-wellness. She wasn't treating me like a problem to be fixed only with medication. She understood the language I was speaking. I think what we want to try to do is, is not to avoid others uh, in the midst of their struggles with mental health challenges, um, not minimize those challenges and expect people to just get over something. Um, and I think, again, back to what Samira shared about the harm of toxic positivity and how that places a burden back on the traumatized. Um, so in our efforts to, to care, and, and those, you know, sometimes we say those things out of genuine care about wanting somebody to get over it and, and not understanding, why, what do you have to feel depressed about? Um, but we may end up re-traumatizing them and you know adds to their burden like why do I feel this way and and taking it on themselves and so yes we want to do those things and yet we need to acknowledge our own limitations in caring for others that there's a need for those outside of the situation with more expertise and a real need for boundaries for ourselves um, that as we 
have family members, friends, loved ones um, who are struggling with these things, we might need to get support for ourselves and we need to prioritize our own mental health, like the whole airplane concept of put your own mask on before helping others. Um, and, uh, and, and being able to share that, that now in quote and thinking about making those invisible things more visible, can we be vulnerable um, and share and care for each other at that level? And, and then I think as Christians, I can't help but think too about that macro level. And if we know that chronic life stressors contribute to the development or perpetuation of mental health challenges, what are we, what, what am I, as Christ followers, doing to reduce the stress in which others live? And how do we fight for people to have secure access to things that buffer them from chronic stress, like housing and food security, education, childcare, job security, climate change? Yeah, I, I, it just feels like there's also that level at which uh, we can think about these concerns. Um, and how can God work through us in these messes of our corporate lives? So that's, um, th that's my big questions, really. Um, and, uh, and I have, you know, we didn't always used to do this liturgical prayer. I, for those of you, I don't know, maybe just only remember that happening in our church, but we didn't used to do that. And it has been, for me, um, it's such a great thing to have that, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer, to fall back on. At times when I don't have the words, I don't understand, um, and it just points me back to what I do believe, that God does have mercy and that he hears. And so um, that's what I have to do with these big questions is, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. So, so yeah. Who, what questions I, that I don't have answers to, or what, you know, what experience, what does that, you know, how does any of this speak to anybody? Yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah. The value of a friend is pretty amazing. It is. But you can't be the perfect friend for everybody. No, no. And, and again, you have to take care of yourself yeah. as a friend. Yeah, yeah. There have to be limits. Yep. It, it, it's a big movement in the whole substance abuse and mental health fields now with peer peer support being so important. Um, and there's more funding now for training those to be, you know. Fortunately, we have a big backup, the Cheryl Wayman boundaries <laughs> teaching. We've yeah, right, that right, right, time. right, right, <laughs> exactly, exactly. We've learned that in our church well, so, yeah. This is a great question. Go with, with um, that whole thing with drugs, and then in, does it induce something that's latent, like some of those drugs that, or is it, or can it create an issue? And that? is it self-medication? I, I mean, I think I think it's it's and. I mean, I don't. You know, we could yeah. look at. We'd need to look at all the research and and what's what's you know what's being done. I think there are situations in which the substance use unmasks something or causes. You know, we know that like there can be cocaine-induced psychosis, that kind of thing. Um, so there, you know, there can be causes, but but I also, from experience in in our own family, um, truly believe that substance abuse issues came about as a result of someone trying to self-medicate for a mental health issue. That's so, hard to do. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just think the word stigma. 
stigma is really important and I think mental health. Stigma and mental health, those two words are really important for Christians and I love that our church is doing this because life is really messy and I haven't been able to come to all of them. But I have a deep love for people, as you know, as you know, and, and it comes from removing stigmas about people. And I think all of us need to work and see ourselves through a different lens. So where are I think at analyzing ourselves to see where are our stigmas. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times mm-hmm. we don't recognize them in ourselves. Right, right. Yeah. So our biases and our stigma. All the biases I, that we have. So I, I yeah. yeah and mental health is a huge, mm-hmm. huge mm-hmm. as you said, fifty percent. Right, right. People it's, physically, so it's, really, right, right, say right. Yeah, it's pervasive, yeah. but yeah. not to minimize it. Right, right, right. I um, I can tell you, um, I had a headache condition um for a while. This was several years ago, and um, one of the possible treatments was uh, to take lithium, and so uh, which is at that time was uh, being used to treat bipolar disorder was kind of the first. Uh, medication really used to treat bipolar disorder and that was kind of what it was known as and I even I so I had this like weird feeling going to the pharmacy to pick up my lithium prescription like I wanted to say to the pharmacist I don't have bipolar disorder but like why why would it matter why would I need to say that if I had bipolar disorder and needed the lithium great I would be taking it but yeah but I but it was just a weird thing to you know, and here I was like, you know, like I know better than this, whatever, but I, but it just was what bubbled up inside me. And so, yeah. So you mentioned that there was an equal appearance of schizophrenia, like globally, but then different levels of like, depression or suicidality. I forget exactly what you mentioned. So kind of your opinion on what are some cultural forces that maybe produce the prevalence yeah. of... I mean, at some level, no, it's it's so rude to say this, but at some level, some of the, at some level, it's 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 privilege, mm-hmm. and, and partly maybe in just recognizing it. But there are some. I mean, if your life doesn't allow, if you've just got to get up and go and do what you've got to do, you don't have have room for some of those things that you you can't acknowledge them um, I think in the same way I, I, I was in in preparing for this too several years ago I read a book about exporting mental illness and um, and how we've taken our labels our western labels of what these different things are and applied them in other places um, and even things like um, PTSD treatment and stuff like thinking oh we're going to do this great service and go to this place where these people have experienced this huge natural disaster and provide this PTSD treatment and and it caused you know people were recovering in their own way in other mm-hmm. cultures and and coming together and we're not it created problems at some level for us to come in and say hey you probably have this from from what you experienced and so so I do think there is some piece of that but here we are in this culture and this is what we have and I and that I in no way want to minimize anyone's depression or anxiety. Um, they're real and debilitating. And, uh, and, and, but I do think, yeah, there's, there, are, there are social forces at work. Yeah, and, well, yeah, or like our individualism, our epidemic of loneliness, 
Yeah. I think also there's that part of medication when you're not getting relief. Yep, absolutely. And then, or a medication where it makes you feel mm -hmm. not yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then someone on the outs, you know, it's like there's a very uh, thin line mm -hmm. between what is acceptable behavior Yes. And yes. what is what someone else thinks your behavior should be. Yeah. yeah. And so when someone is experiencing the downside of medication and then chooses to go off of it and then begins to manage their life in a different way, you know, um, and particularly for myself as a parent, with varieties of things in my work is, you know, it's... it's you have to support the individual. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And then there, the, it, I mean, it, exactly what you brought up is that, you know, we don't know. We don't know why something's working. We don't know if it really is working. Mm. We know certain Right, things, placebo effect is huge. And some things may be suppressed mm -hmm. that may make it more acceptable to the people on the outside, but not acceptable to the individual. Right, mm. yeah. So yeah. there's just this whole huge, uh, I always say that too, is that, you know, the world of medicine and the study of it is really so new. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then that, and we're talking physical, you know, 100 years ago, just get the saw and cut their leg up, you know, mm -hmm. because those are visible. And then the invisible part that we mm -hmm. try to deal with and the complexity of the mind mm -hmm. is something that is just unfathomable yeah 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 I, I, absolutely I think I thank you so much for bringing that up I think yeah the side effects of medication can be brutal just brutal for people and so yeah so people went off of it because they can't stand that like you said they don't feel like themselves and so uh, you know and people uh, there are situations too in which people attribute a recovery that might be to medication, but they think, oh, I don't need this anymore, and, um, and go off of their medications. There's that as well. And again, um, yeah, I, but you're, I agree that it, that it has, there's so much individual choice. It also, um, it, there has to be so much communication around medication with providers, and uh, it, it's such a, a fine art of dosage, and uh, this other medication to counter effect the side effects and now try this new one and medications that have worked for years for somebody because of their own you know aging and whatever else no longer work for them and so yeah it is I think a lot of unknown aging is really important too because if someone's diagnosed relatively early like 18 that where they are at 28 is completely different in terms of developmentally mm -hmm their ability to acknowledge their own feelings. You know, there's, there's also the human growth that just simply happens, that changes. So mm -hmm. there's just, and, you know, medical providers are leaning. Yeah. You yeah. know, depending on where you're living or depending on what your, what your insurance is or then you're offered. Right, you know, right, right. It's such, yeah. so uncanny to me that at age 26 you're off your insurance, you know. That's like... Okay. 
go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just think that the the whole body wellness and looking at nutrition and physical yep. fitness and yep. trying to also do that because of course you know a young woman at age 18 yeah you want to take something that's going to put on 25 pounds to your body mm -hmm. that's going to ruin your hair that's going to do these your skin is going to break out or you know all these things that that are real physical manifestations and problems for them yeah that they'd rather yeah. just deal with whatever the mental anguish mm -hmm. is yeah. they have i think yeah. there's a huge portion of that is just yeah. in denial. Right, right, right. You know, some good alternatives to medication that, that are effective, that people are ready to receive. That's the big thing about people's choices. You mentioned diet and exercise and things. I know that for me, with depression, and I had a little bit after a stroke, enough for me it was unusual and I was really glad to be detected it was depression I was what was wrong with me and I found that uh, you know changing the diet a lot was big and then getting out and getting ex exercise especially aerobic exercise and oxygen to the brain and flushing that out really helped a lot still mm -hmm. does so mm -hmm. I, I don't know how easy that is to prescribe or or how much difference it makes for medication people right people are, right and the combination of things, too, that people, you know, those kinds of things, getting outside, those kinds of things, and therapy, too, that for a lot of people, it's medication and therapy, talk therapy for, for a lot of the disorders. And I think recognizing that it's lifelong, and that can be debilitating. Yeah. And, and that point of not wanting to be defined by it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, just as a, as a person in another person's life, supporting their coping mechanisms, like mm -hmm. That's the resilience. Yeah, the resilience. Yeah, about yeah. 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 Learning strategies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yep. 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 Right. And and not just uh, recognizing what the triggers are and yeah. Yeah. That that the story I read that was you know big for her that she realized different stressors and things in her life that would yeah. And a good friend. Right, and a good friend, yeah, yeah. With whom you can be honest and share these things, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I wasn't that article in the LA Times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I read yeah. it there. They had a whole series, it, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. amazing that, you know, here is a trained medical professional <clears throat> struggling with this information and really has had so much education around the whole topic. And then when we talk about 55% of the people who are not going to Harvard Medical School, right. trying to, I don't know, recognizing that something's off, but not being able to how, how do we know? parse it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminds me of a, of a cousin who came from uh, Poland and she said, you know, I find it so, this grocery store analogy, which is so, I think, apt, but she said, why on earth do you have like 35 oh, yeah, clusters? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How can you ever make the choice? Yeah, and yeah, I think, yeah. you know, that is part of it. Yeah. And that's why yeah. I think your point of privilege yeah. is, is really also, we should acknowledge that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
to what extent can uh, diet and nutrition help um, in some of these uh, people who are either suffering, uh, whatever, suffering? And, and one thing which I read the other day was was the use of some mushrooms for depression. Yeah, like yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. Right, right, yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely, that, but I mean, there's definitely people that are benefiting from some of those kinds of alternative treatments, and I mean, very controversial at some level, but yeah, um, and yeah, I mean, I don't have like great data or anything, but, but certainly um, it, it is important, um, yeah. I think it can, a part of it can it. In essence, there could be some natural remedy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, right. I, yeah, to what David was saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I just think there seems to be, we need, there's so much education for everybody in the yeah. community. Yeah. And we probably need these classes weekly because I think education and then um, recognition, because you know, just even with my, with Tony being ADD, so it wasn't, I worked with somebody that was HD, but we were falling off the chair, but growing up, we just couldn't focus, and I was just yelling at him, like, pay attention, sit down, do this, and later on, once he realized that's what he had and took the medication, I had a couple teachers say, we never saw it, and I took them everywhere, psychologists, school, you know, reading classes, but, um, so, how do you ever, you know, it's hard to recognize and then be educated. It is, it is, yeah, yeah. I think we, when especially kids are aware of it, they will mask mm -hmm. so that others don't see those. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, compensate, we, we compensate for things, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I was wondering if you could actually, if you have noticed anything about sugar and mm. uh, both mental, I mean, we know behaviorally, of course, what it does, but have you noticed any inclination for a sugar drive or something? If there's a any yeah, I, I mean I don't have any kind of expertise in that at all. But um, yeah, I haven't done yeah, I don't have any data or anything. Is but there anything happening in that realm? I, I I'm sure there has. Yeah, I'm sure there has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we have time for one more question. Oh, yes. I observed that in a store the other day, uh, a young boy running around the store. Mm -hmm. Danny, come here. Danny, come here. And I said, Dad, walk by. So it seems like you have a lot of Danny management going on. <laughs> and he said, yeah, that's a good way to look at it. But he never yelled. He never raised mm -hmm. his voice. He just said, Danny, come here. Because he was showing him clothes and things mm -hmm. like that. And it was just fun to watch that it wasn't bothering anybody else that Dad let him run, but mm -hmm. got him back to where he needed to be without making it a you're a bad person. Yeah. So whatever's yeah. going on there, you yeah. are just an Right, right, and that kind of that fine line too of, of developmentally what's appropriate behavior and what we expect of, of kids. But then there's the Tonys who are, who, who can't pay attention and so, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, thank you so much. So, Lord, um, we, we are so thankful for your presence in our lives and and your care for us in all these things um, and Lord that you love us 
and um, and want so much for us. And yet, Lord, you have not promised us lives with no pain and nothing to deal with and, and nothing but happiness. Lord, um, there is pain and sorrow in life, and um, we cling to your presence with us through whatever it is that we and our loved ones walk through. Um, and, uh, Lord, we pray that we uh, can get the support of others uh, when we can cannot. We're just not in a place to be able to know your presence with us. And, Lord, we pray that we would be those others, um, that you would use us to be your presence, to care for others, to to be community in a genuine and, and loving way. Thank you for your mercy and your, your grace to us. Amen. 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 Amen.